We are continuing this morning in our study of Luke's account of the early years of the church in Acts. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 14. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you should be able to find that on page 1174, Acts 14. Now, last week we looked at Paul and Barnabas' time in Pisidian Antioch, uh, there in the middle of what is modern-day Turkey, uh, and the decidedly mixed results that they got there. Some believed and were filled with the Holy Spirit. Great! That's good news! But others rejected the gospel entirely and opposed the missionary team so much so that they eventually shook the dust from their feet and left town. This week, we're following the next few steps in this story, the next few uh, stages of their effort, their journey, the cities that they travel through. And because Luke narrates this section pretty quickly, runs through a number of different places fairly quickly, uh, we focus more on the forest than on the trees. And we are able to see some big themes that come through that we might otherwise miss if we were focused on smaller individual narratives. But of course, as always, as we open God's Word together, we need the Holy Spirit to speak to us through it. So if you're able now, please stand with me while I pray. Remain standing as I read from Acts chapter 14. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for the truth that you have invaded and given to us, uh, broken into our truthless world, into our truthless lives, to give us your truth. We pray that you would open our eyes to see clearly the words that you have given us, the truth that you have given us, and that we would glorify you by believing and living the truth that you explain here in your word. May your name be praised through the reading and the preaching of your word this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Acts 14. I'll start at the beginning of the chapter. This is God's word. Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices to the crowds, with the crowd. Excuse me. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard, it, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. 
Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that though many tribulation, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. In 1949, researchers asked a group of students at Ivy League schools to perform a simple task. Identify a playing card. I mean, there were a couple of catches. Uh, first, the cards were shown very quickly. You only had just an, a moment, an instant, as they flipped it up and put it right back down to see what it was and identify the card as quickly as possible. And that's obvious. How well can you identify something seen only for a moment? But the second catch here was that the researchers were using a deck that had some ordinary playing cards and some trick cards with odd colors and suits. For example, red spades, black hearts, things like that. And the researchers discovered that it took the students four times longer to identify a trick card than a normal card. The students' brains struggled to process something as out of the ordinary as a red six of clubs. Even after they had seen two or three trick cards, it still took extra time for them to identify another trick card. And in many cases, the students actually tried to compromise or reconcile what they expected to see with what they actually saw. For instance, uh, one saw this red six of clubs. He described it as the six of clubs illuminated by a red light. It wasn't. It was just painted red, right, instead of black. In other words, the participants couldn't accept the facts of what they saw simply because they didn't expect to see it. They didn't see what they expected. It was contrary to their expectations. So their brains rewrote their perception. The researchers called their study the perception of incongruity, which simply means that when we encounter something that doesn't fit our expectations, doesn't fit our worldview, we have a strong tendency or temptation to ignore what the part that doesn't fit. Or we tend to compromise to make it fit, to squeeze it in, even though it doesn't really fit, to squeeze it into our worldview in a place that makes sense to us, but it doesn't actually fit there. Trying to squeeze it into our assumptions about how the world should work. And the researchers noted that everyone Everyone, regardless of intelligence or education or whatever, everyone falls prey to this same phenomenon. It is part of the way our brains work, the perception of incongruity. Now, our passage this morning, we're continuing to follow Paul and Barnabas as they travel through the west-central portion of Asia Minor, modern Turkey. We saw last week they'd been at Pisidian Antioch and had seen many come to faith. Uh, But even while there were many, particularly among the non-Jewish population who believed and who rejoiced, unfortunately, there were also many who not only refused to believe, but who actively opposed the preaching 
the gospel. Those who should have been the most ready to hear of the Messiah and to believe were instead the most likely to reject the gospel and to oppose it because it didn't align with their expectations. Mark Twain is supposed, supposedly, I mean, he said a lot of things or had a lot of things attributed to him, but one of the things that has been attributed to him is he said this, it ain't so much the things people don't know that makes trouble in the world as it is the things that people know that just ain't so. They had all the background information necessary. God's revelation of His character, of His purpose, the record of God's interaction with the world and especially with His people in the world, in the Scriptures, in the Law and the Prophets, they should have recognized Christ immediately. But as so often happens, they had gotten locked into one way to fix, solve the puzzle and couldn't think of any other possibilities, any other ways to fit those pieces together. And so they sought to destroy, even literally and violently destroy, those who disagreed with them. And yet, in the midst of this response from so many, there were some who believed and rejoiced. And this dichotomy, faith and persecution, continues to be the pattern wherever we see the gospel proclaimed. Faith, persecution, faith and affliction. We saw last week Paul and Barnabas teaching in Antioch emphasized the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies to Israel even to the fulfillment and the inclusion of non-Israelites, the Gentiles, in God's plan of salvation on equal footing. And I think that was part of what they struggled with. At first, the Jews heard with excitement. But when a large number of those Gentiles showed up to hear the message, they became jealous, began to contradict and revile Paul and company, and eventually drove them out of the city entirely. Far from being discouraged at such a swift reversal, the disciples continued on to Iconium, proclaimed the gospel there in the exact same pattern. Again, Paul goes to the synagogue first and proclaimed the message to the Jews first because it is the message to the Jews first and then to the Greeks, as he would say in, will say in Romans. While Luke doesn't record their teaching there in the synagogue in Iconium, we should assume that the substance was largely the same as it had been in Pisidian Antioch. Paul was declaring the fulfillment of God's promises to the very people who had reason to be intimately familiar with those promises. The response was similar. Division. Some believed, both Jews and Gentiles. Others did not. And those who didn't were actively working to discredit Paul and company. Verse 2, literally poisoning their minds against the brothers. Yet as the opposition increased in Iconium, look at the response. They didn't respond as, as an Antioch, as we might expect. The opposition increased, so they left. So they shook the dust off their feet. So they called down a curse on Iconium. No, what does it say? As the opposition increased, verse 3, Therefore, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly to the Lord. Luke is very clear here. It isn't that the missionaries remained despite the resistance shown, but instead they remained because of the resistance shown. And they spoke boldly, trusting the Lord's provision in the midst of this opposition. The Lord, in response, bore witness to their message, confirming it by signs and wonders, what we would call miracles. As an aside, this is always the reason for miracles. Every time you see a miracle in Scripture, it is the Lord confirming either the call of His servants who are proclaiming the gospel or confirming the message that they proclaim. Miracles in Scripture are always a confirmation of the message 
not separate from, in addition to. But eventually, the group of people, of those people who didn't believe, plotted to kill the messengers. And this is a pattern that we'll see repeated over and over again. But note who made up the group. It's both Jews and Gentiles, both rulers and common folk. These are people who would ordinarily have been at each other's throats, who would hate each other, but found the gospel to be enough of a threat to partner with those they would normally hate to get rid of it. As much as the right preaching of the truth will upend the lives of those who believe it, requiring us to live differently, it also upends the lives of those who reject it, of those who do not believe. But Paul, of course, they, they're plotting to kill Paul and Barnabas and whoever, uh, but they learn of the attack before it happened and they leave for the next region, the next consular region over, the towns of Lystra and Derby. Now, before we look at what actually happens there, it's important to dig into some background so that we can understand the differences between their approach and what happens at Lystra and Derby, and what happened in both Antioch and Iconium because these were very different places. The, the, those two cities, Antioch and Iconium, were relatively large, important cities on major trade routes. They were cosmopolitan, generally fairly well-educated, generally relatively wealthy, with a not insignificant Jewish population in the city. Lystra and Derby were backwater farm towns with very little contact with anybody outside their, their little region there. And almost no contact with Israel's God. Yet for them, in these small towns, their faith was an important part of their lives. We have archaeological findings from these towns showing that there were temples to the Greek gods, inscriptions showing that worship of those gods was an important part of their lives, their daily lives in that area. And that gives us some clue as to why they reacted the way that they did, uh, trying to worship Paul and Barnabas as if they were Greek gods. This was the context that they were expecting. But there's actually more going on to the, even than that. Uh, there was a story that had become fairly commonplace in that area, maybe 25 to 50 years before this, uh, that had been retold. We've actually got a record of this story, but from uh, the, the Roman poet Ovid, Ovid, I don't know how to pronounce his name, uh, the story goes that Zeus and Hermes, the Greek gods, had come to the area disguised as beggars. They went to a thousand different homes in this larger region here, and no one aside from one family, aside from one uh, household, welcomed them. In retribution, the gods had sent a flood to destroy all who refused to welcome them, but made that one family who had welcomed them into the priests that would worship, uh, worship and serve in the temple. For this region... This, was, this story was roughly akin to the, our story of George Washington cutting down the cherry tree. It was part of what formed their identity, their, their, who they were. So naturally, when Paul and Barnabas show up and do something miraculous, heal this man who's lame, clearly miraculous thing, they identify these two strangers with this story they've just heard. They've been hurt hearing for years. And because the last time the gods came, so-called. That visit had resulted in death for all, virtually. This time, the Lystrans were going to get it right. They were going to offer sacrifice right away and welcome these gods. Now, it takes Paul and Barnabas a little while to figure out kind of what's going on here because there's a language uh, you know, barrier going on. The Lystrans spoke a, a different language than, you know, than the traditional Greek that was common and the trade language around there. But when they do figure it out, 
they immediately move to stop the sacrifice. And they try to convince these people that they are just men and not gods. And there's indications in the text that they struggled. That they, they were so convinced by this miracle that they were Zeus and Hermes, that they, they really had a hard time stopping them from sacrificing. But Luke summarizes their teaching here, and it's interesting to see how very different Paul's message is here than it was in either Antioch or Iconium or any place else. In both of those places, there was a good bit of what we would call biblical literacy, familiarity with the Scriptures, decent Jewish population in a synagogue. People knew the promises of God fairly well. Paul could refer them just to fulfilling the promises that they were familiar with. Here in Lystra, they were pagans. There was virtually no knowledge of the truth of God, the true God. So where does Paul go with his teaching? Where does he make the connection with them? How does he, how does he make that connection so that they will actually have a touch point to understand and, and connect with the gospel message? He works to find common ground. They both have what the reformers call used to call sometimes the book of nature. We have you know, the book of Scripture and the book of nature, which is creation or general revelation, we sometimes call it. And Paul declares that the missionaries bring good news. The Lystrans can turn away from these false gods to a living God, the God who indeed made the whole world and everything in it. And we have to understand this was, was and it remains a huge claim. It has vast implications for their lives. Throughout the ancient world, outside of Israel, throughout the ancient world, every god or idol claimed to be part of the creation of the world, claimed to have created some portion of the world. And what they had created, they ruled over in a special way, and they expected to be worshipped so that that little corner of creation would work for the worshippers to the benefit of the human, humans who worshipped. Sometimes this was a, a tribal deity, a god of maybe the god of the Ammonites or a god of the Hittites or whatever, who cared for a specific people or a particular piece of land in a special way. Other times it was portions of the natural world, the god of the sea, the god of the harvest, you know, so on and so forth. Worship and sacrifice never guaranteed good results because the gods were capricious. They were fickle. Sometimes they'd do what you wanted. Sometimes they ignored you completely. Sometimes they did the exact opposite of what you wanted. They were fickle and weak, constantly fighting each other. And there were always another God that you might have to buy off with a sacrifice so that you could have your first sacrifice be effective. It was terrible. And into this type of worship, in this understanding of the world, in fact, in the face of people who are trying to sacrifice to them, Paul declares that there is exactly one God. And that this one true and living God chose for his own purposes to allow most nations to go their way for a while. Not, it is important to note that there were multiple routes to salvation. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But that the Lord allowed them to go their way, uh, chose simply to be patient and not destroy those to whom he had not yet given his word, his special revelation. But in the midst of letting them go their own way, he had not left himself without a witness. In creation, there is always a witness, a testimony to the Lord. He created everything. And in this case, He provides, He sent rain and fruitful seasons even on those who reject Him, who are worshiping false gods. Indeed, Jesus says exactly the same thing on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, God makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the just 
and on the unjust. That's Matthew 5 at the end of the chapter there. The Lord lavishes His providential care on all of creation, even the parts in rebellion against Him. God's care in providing this farming community with rain from the heavens and fruitful seasons resulted in food and gladness. Paul was making a connection to their own experience and to the things that they found most valuable. And those, that provision that the Lord made should have made it obvious to them that their gods were not in control since there was no correlation between the sacrifices they offered and what they received. It should have been clear that there is a God who they should be seeking, to whom they should turn away from their dead idols. Romans talks about this principle of the Lord revealing Himself in creation and how it is sufficient for us to be condemned because it tells us there is a God who we should pursue and know. Creation by itself is not sufficient for us to be saved because we must pursue Him and find special revelation, find the special explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the creation is enough for us to know that He's there and that we can know Him if we pursue. Despite not realizing it sooner, now Paul proclaimed the truth, pulled back the curtain on the dead, useless idols, and showed the living and active God who had already loved and cared for this people we talked last week about contextualization the the content of the gospel message doesn't change but that the way that we might convey that message does change so as to reach people in front of us most effectively to make the best connection with them so when paul was speaking to the jews and those who knew the scriptures he referred to the fulfilled promises of god in the scriptures When he spoke to those who didn't know the Scriptures, who didn't know the promises of God, he pointed them to Jesus using ideas and events with which they were familiar. He conveyed the same truth about Jesus, but used language that was easily understandable where they are. And some believed. Luke doesn't really tell us how long they were there, but it had to be in at least a little while. Uh, It had to be long enough for the word of their new location to travel the 50 or 75 miles back to Iconium, or the mob to get riled up there in Iconium, traveled all the way back to Lystra to stir up the mob there, and then, you know, plot to kill them. Uh, there, had to, there had to been some time for that to happen. And there had to been time for them to make faithful disciples, because after Paul is stoned and they drag what they think is his dead body out of the city, disciples gather around him. So they had to have been there long enough to make some faithful disciples to see what they also seem to have thought was Paul's body. It's a good bit of time compressed into this short narrative, but whether it was a week or a year, everywhere the word was proclaimed, the Holy Spirit is working to bring men and women to himself, to be making faithful disciples and trusting in Christ. Now, just to finish this narrative quickly, Paul was left for dead, right? But got up, walked back into Lystra, and I have to, I I mean, y'all, I have to think this took an amazing amount of courage to have undergone stoning hop up and walk right back into the city where the mob just went back into. Just, they, they just lynched him, and he walks right back into it. Luke doesn't say this explicitly, but there is, as one commentator wrote here, there's a, the flavor of a miracle. Luke doesn't say explicitly that he was dead and now he's not, or that he was deeply wounded and the Lord healed him. Luke doesn't explicitly say this. But you've got to know that there's something more than just normal health going on here. Paul They thought he was dead, or at least dying, else they would have continued to throw rocks at him, right? If he's not dead yet, then keep throwing rocks until he is dead. 
Right after that, Paul hops up, walks back into town, and the next morning hikes 50 miles down the road to the next town to Derby. Without God's direct intervention, there's no way he takes that little jaunt the next morning. Even if if he was just concussed so that he passed out and they thought he was dead, he wouldn't be walking anywhere for a while with that level of concussion. Again, Luke doesn't tell us specifically, and whether it was by miraculous healing or by something else, the next day they travel to Derby and they preach there for a while, making many disciples. And then they return and they go through, and again, we don't know how long this took, but they returned and went through all of these cities again, uh, touching base with uh, the people who had believed in Christ, strengthening them, building local resources, appointing elders, uh, the local resources that they would need to continue to grow in the faith and follow Christ faithfully. As I said, Everywhere that the Word of God is proclaimed faithfully, the Holy Spirit is at work. The gospel message doesn't always work the way that we would want it to. What we'd like is we stand up and proclaim the gospel, and everybody goes, Amen, we believe, let's go. That's what we want. And God does that sometimes. But most of the time, there is a divided reaction. Now, the gospel is always a fork in the road. It is always a call to obey the Lord and forsake idols, but not everyone wants to hear that message. Not everyone chooses to obey. Jesus said in Matthew 10, I have come not to bring peace, but a sword. And then he describes how even immediate family members will be set in opposition to each other. And that passage confused me for a long time, particularly since the emphasis of preaching in recent decades has been much more on the fact that Jesus does bring peace, the retiring of the enmity between God and sinful people, a shalom or whole life peace with the Lord as sin is overcome and we are through the Holy Spirit made more and more like Christ. And that is absolutely true. The sword that Jesus brought is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and everywhere that sword goes, people who hear have to choose. Gospel puts a fork in the road where you can no longer keep going straight. You have to go either to the right or to the left. Our lives cannot continue as they were once the truth of Christ, once for all sacrifice is declared to us. We, as believers, we are reoriented toward God. Our lives are changed. Those who are given faith, who do believe we have changed lives, we are, again, reoriented to God slowly and arduously, maybe. Might take a long time, might be painful, might be work, but our lives are reoriented as sin is mortified in us and we become more and more like Jesus. At the same time, those who refuse to believe, they are also changed. They are hardened as they turn away from the truth. The proclamation of the gospel is a dangerous business because the sword of the Spirit divides one from another. We cannot hear it and remain the same. Just as Moses' preaching was good news to the Israelites and hardened Pharaoh, so the preaching of the gospel is good news, the aroma of life to those who Christ has died for, and the aroma of death, bad news to those who are perishing. Every time the Word of God is faithfully proclaimed, whether from a pulpit like this or across the lunch table or on the golf tee or at the deer stand, every time the Holy Spirit is at work. We cannot hear it and remain the same. The Gospel calls us to turn our worlds inside out and upside down, mentally for certain, 
if not also more practically in our actions, we are called to align with the King. To reorient our priorities, to reorient our thinking about what is good and what is not. What is valuable for our time commitments and what is not. How are our lives being changed, shifted, turned to be more and more like Christ? Now, of course, we're not going to get there in this life. Our, we will not fully be made in, in His image, made, remade in the image of Christ until we arrive in glory or He returns, whichever comes first. But we, are, we do grow. We are sanctified. We are made more like Him tomorrow than we are today and more like Him today than we were yesterday. To be great in the kingdom of heaven is to be the servant of all and the greatest victory in history was won on the cross in seeming death. In actual death, truly. In seeming defeat. Now this inside-out, upside-down way of the kingdom may result in fruitful seasons, food, and gladness for us. It also may result in stoning as we call on those who want no part of Christ to repent of their sin and humble themselves before the one true God. Christian, we are called to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ everywhere we go to everyone we meet. In every relationship, all the time, we are called to proclaim Christ. In our words, in our actions, in our thoughts, in our prayer life, in the ways that we humble ourselves before the Holy Lord, in the ways that we repent before God and before each other, we are called to proclaim Christ's grace. Faithfulness in this area means, with Paul, speaking boldly for the Lord wherever he chooses to send us, trusting him to be at work and leaving the results to him. Because remember, we can't change people's hearts. We can't make somebody believe. We can proclaim the truth, but we trust Him to be at work and accomplish the results. As you follow Christ, you will, you will face persecution and affliction in this life. It will come. He is drawing His sheep to Himself, and His sheep cannot be lost, but our adversary will attack. No power in heaven and on on earth or under the earth can snatch His people out of His hand. But He'll try. We rest peacefully in Christ's hand despite all that the world, the flesh, or the devil can do. No matter what they try, we rest in His hand and nothing can snatch us out of it. Jesus said that we would face trials and tribulations in the world. They will come, but then what did He say? You will face trials and tribulations in this world, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Brothers and sisters, we live on the mission field. We live on the mission field. Let us boldly trust Him and humbly declare His truth to everyone who is perishing, to everyone in our lives, to everyone in the world. Let us Humbly and boldly declare the gospel and trust him to be at work. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace that you are working in our lives, that you are working in the world. We beg you, bring us in line with your gospel. Make us live your truth, your gospel, that we might with our whole lives declare your glory and declare your truth. We pray, Lord, that as we declare 
what your Son has done for us as we proclaim it and call men and women to repent, that you would work a mighty work through us. That we would see many who do not know you turn and give their lives to you, Lord. That is your work. We pray that you would accomplish it where we can see so that we can see what your hand is doing. Make your name great in us, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.